So tonight, as we're going through our study in First Thessalonians, we are going to be focusing on the topic of sexual purity. And you know, I was trying to figure out ways if I can try to, you know, talk about this succinctly. Um, but there, I just have a lot to say in this topic. So this, so tonight's sermon will be slightly longer than, I guess, what we've been trying to do on Zoom, which I've been trying to limit everything between 30 minutes to 35 minutes. Tonight, we might probably go up to 45. This is a topic that, you know, I, I think most of us find interesting, and yet we are maybe just afraid to talk about. When we speak many times about our struggles with this, and we speak about it in innuendos. We make allusions to our heart's desires, to, to the lust that exists there. We make jokes about sex, right? And, and we make jokes, especially at weddings. And we're always like, you know, elbowing, nudging other people about it. But inside, many times we secretly long for the same thing. And so tonight, I want to talk about sex, and I want, and not, not in its details, but I want to talk about how it relates to our sanctification, how it relates to the holiness of God, and ultimately how it relates to the glory of God. And so, when it comes down to our sexual purity, the, the quarantine, the effects of quarantine does impact us in, in many ways. I mean, there's, I believe the, the data shows that there's a sharp uptick in pornography use, right? With the increased amount of time at home, with the, the amount of time you spend on our screens, on the internet, there's just also this increased temptation. And when we've seen, we've also seen during quarantine a rise in percentages of people filing for divorce. And, and, and they're filing for divorce because now they're now that people are in quarantine, marriages that were built on poor foundation are, are now being put to the test. And when we're talking about sex, we can't we can't talk about that apart from marriage. Right? There, there's this direct correlation between the two. And I mean, we want to talk about even the darker side of what quarantine might have impact on sex. We even though I haven't read anything much about this, I can just only imagine what corning does and when it forces everyone home into secrecy and maybe at home there might be abuse going on and that's hidden away from society. You know, in, in the midst of all these things that's, that are happening in our society, in our world today, I want us to think about our own personal walks in the midst of all this. How we deal, how we deal with our sexual desires is indeed a testament to our relationship with God. And so, how are you doing with your sexual desires? Now, you know, not many of us, well, when I'm talking about this, I'm sure many of us do struggle with this. Maybe we struggle with pornography or we struggle um, with images, but I know that's not everyone as well. But I do want to put this out there, that I do believe all of us struggle, or not struggle, all of us have sexual desires. Whether they're desires for pleasure, desires for intimacy, comfort, security, control. What I'm saying is that sex is not just about the physical act of sex. Sex is about your heart. It's about your worship. And, and, and we have to think about it in this way. We have to think about 
this physical act of sex in terms of what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our desires, and how it relates to our worship before God. Paul Tripp writes this in his book, Sex in a Broken World. And it's a book that I'll refer to over and over again throughout, our, throughout the sermon. He, he, he says this. Uh, hold up, this is not working. He says, sex is an act of worship, and the true worship of God will determine what happens in your sexual life. And so what we're going to see tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, is we're going to find three calls from God that relates to your sexual purity, and three calls from God that corresponds to your walk with God. And so with that, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, I want to go ahead and set up the context for us first. So the context can be found in verses 1 to 3. And what we get to here in chapter 4 is that we've been spending our time in 1 Thessalonians from chapters 1 to 3. And through chapters 1 to 3, Paul has been pretty much introducing himself to the church. It's, it's a long introduction. He's talking to previous, you know, history that he has with them. And he's encouraging them. He's exhorting them. And now Paul wants them to keep striving. Paul wants them to keep running. Now he's, we're reaching the instructions of Paul, the, where, where Paul is going to tell, tell the Thessalonians, this is what you must now do. In other words, even though the Thessalonians were indeed a faithful church, Paul don't want them to stop and smell the flowers. They, he wants them to keep going. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, starting in verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. There's, there's, there's two things I want to point out here, or three things actually, three things I want to point out here. First, we see here that Paul is speaking to believers. And so the call of holiness that we're going to be covering is directed towards believers. He's, we're talking about Christians, people who have already demonstrated their faith through work. And we, we see this kind of throughout First Thessalonians, right? Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul speaks of their conversion. He tells them that they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. These Thessalonians have forsaken their ways to, they are forsaking their ways to serve God. And this is a direct response to God's calling. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, we Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word, but in the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. We see that Paul is talking about calling. There's this response to God's calling. We see a similar thing playing now in chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says that you are to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul, Paul is speaking of how we're supposed to respond to the call of God. 
And so what we see here as well is that the call to holiness requires a response. It requires a response to the one who calls us. The response to God. And so what this passage here, verses 1 and 2 is, is a transition. It's a transition of, that introduces us into the part from, verses, from chapters 4 to 6. The instructions Paul lays out for the Thessalonians. And the first instruction that we're going to see relates then to our sanctification. Relates to our holiness. In chapter 3, or sorry, in verse 3, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul lays it clear here. God's will is your sanctification. That you, that you would do this, that you would pursue holiness. And, and maybe some of you are, are wondering what God's will is for your life, for your career, for who you're going to marry, when you'll get married. And, and, and all that's quite natural. It, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong to wonder what God's will is for that because it shows that you're thinking about God as you're considering your future. But know that there's one aspect of God and his will for you that remains true no matter in what position you're in. And that is this, that he wants you to pursue holiness. And so the call to holiness seeks to walk according to God's will. And that's what sanctification is all about. The, the Greek word here in verse 3 for sanctification is, God, is agiamos. This word is used actually three times in our passage. It's used in verse 4. When he talks about how to control his own body and holiness and honor. So it's in holiness or in sanctification and honor. It's used again in verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness or in sanctification. And so this word sanctification, it has a direct tie to holiness. The, the word holy, where we're talking about a life that's consecrated to God, a life that's separated for God, set apart, set apart from this world, set apart from the standards set by man, set apart so that's wholly dedicated to God alone, to God and His will. Holiness, holiness then here becomes the realm in which Paul is going to address sexual purity. And so we're going to see here then three calls, three calls relating to our holiness. The first call we'll see is the call to holy discipline. The call to holy discipline. We see here in, in verse 3 to 6, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What we see here is this call to holy discipline. And Paul here in these three short verses actually lays out three disciplines for us. So these are going to be sub points within this major point. And the first sub-point here is to separate yourself from the world standards. The first discipline that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you abstain from the world's standard of sex, 
that you separate yourself, that you avoid this at all costs, that you have zero affiliation with it, that it will never be part of your daily habits. The word, the word for sexual morality here, it's a broad term. It, it covers everything from premarital sex to prostitution to homosexuality. It, in other words, it's, it's every sexual activity outside of God's standard of sex. God's standard is of sex is this, that sex is reserved only for the husband and the wife in holy matrimony. So what we see here is Paul here, he's, he's addressing the church in Thessalonica and, and, and the Thessalonians, they, they were living in the city that during those times, promiscuity and sexual morality were rampant. Temptation was literally at the front door. And so it was so easy for the church to have sexual morality infiltrate in. And, and we see a similar problem today, do we not? We see a similar problem today, and not just in our church, but even in our own homes. Almost every form of entertainment these days teaches us a sexual ethic that's contrary to God's standards. It's, it's all around us. And in this day and age, when sexual temptation is literally sitting at the palm of your hands, how will you pursue holiness and honor? We have to think about abstaining from sexual morality. Abstaining from sexual morality is more than just saying, let's run off to the woods, disconnect ourselves, and become a monk somewhere. Abstaining from sexuality is more than just running away. We actually have to deal with our hearts, which leads to our second discipline that we have here. In verses 4 to 5, Paul talks about controlling the desires of your heart. Controlling the desires of your heart. Well, what I read here in verse 4, I, I read from the ESV. It's an ESV translation. If you have the NASB, your NASB may have translated verse 4 this way. Might, they might have said that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. Now, if, for the ESV, it was actually that translation is actually in my subscript. So it, it's, in my subscript, it says, in the Greek, it says how to possess his own vessel. And so what, what does this mean? Well, there's two possible, there's actually two possible interpretations for what for what this means. Because the literal translation for body is indeed vessel. And, and the two possible interpretations is this. First, we see that the, the vessel here can mean body, as the ESV translated it. And, and, and what it refers to here is to talk about our bodies as an instrument, as a tool. Um, the word vessel, it's, it's used that way similarly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20-21, where Paul is speaking to Timothy and talking about using our lives as an instrument for good works. And so that's where, and, and that's where we get this concept of when we talk about our vessels, we're talking about our bodies. But another interpretation for the word vessel is that it can mean the word wife. And when we see this being used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where it talks about husbands are to honor their wife as their weaker vessel. And so here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is encouraging the young men to acquire their own wife 
In other words, to stop playing around, sleeping with different women, and to control their sexual desires with one wife, one woman. Now, I lean towards the first interpretation, which is the ESV translation, that this is about controlling our own bodies, because the context seems to be focusing more upon living a holy and sanctified life. But I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have it the other way. In either case, Paul here is addressing our cravings, our desires, and our passions. He's talking about self-control here. He's talking about self-control, which is one of the fruit of spirits. And self-control, it's more than just a mental exercise. It involves our physical bodies. It involves our emotions. It involves our volition, our decisions and actions. In other words, when we talk about self-control, we have to talk about exercising self-control over every aspect of our lives. So what then does self-control look like when it comes to our sexual purity? Well, Scripture, Scripture consistently points out a connection between our hearts and our eyes. Right? King David, for example. He fell when his, when his eyes, he fixed his gaze upon Bathsheba, right? We, we know in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, connects the heart's love for his world to the desires of our eyes. And so when it comes to sexual morality, what we do with our eyes indeed has, has impact upon our hearts. But what we're dealing here with is we're dealing with a heart problem. But the thing is this, if we allow our eyes to feed our hearts, we're only compounding the issue. Right, it, it is our hearts that causes our eyes to wander and look at things that we desire. But if we allow our eyes to feed our hearts, it just keeps building up. It's like rolling a snowball downhill. The longer you let your eyes go, the bigger the lust becomes. In other words, we have to watch what we feed into our minds, into our hearts. We have to watch what we're and digesting daily. These passions of lust that Paul is describing here, they, yes, they really exist in our hearts, but they are like embers waiting to be sparked up again. My friends, what are you watching? Your TV shows? What are you listening to with your songs? What are you reading on the news? What are you feeding to your mind and into your hearts? We, we see here that the passion of lust, it's more than just a sex drive. You see, this world tells us that the passion of our lust is, is an uncontrollable desire. It's a natural desire that we must satisfy. And if we don't, then, then we become something, we, we, we become unfulfilled. unfulfilled. But tell me this, if you're single, how do you deal with your loneliness? How, do you long for a relationship? 
And does that longing, that, does that desire to be married cause you to fantasize about all life? Of what it might look like to be with the girl or boy that you dream of? And what does that do to your heart? Does it make you grumble against God? For your, Does it make you complain? Does it make you discontent about your life? And if you're not careful, you will find yourself attending to fulfill your desires through the means of sexual morality, through the means of pornography, graphic romance novels, or simulated dating games. And, and trust me, I, I know because I've been there before too, where the longing, the desire for control, for fulfillment, leads me down a dark path. And what ends up happening is that we end up deceiving ourselves with these quick, trivial pleasures that, that leave us unsatisfied. You see, ultimately to exercise self-control over our passions, over our desires, we have to come to know Jesus Christ as the truth that sets us free from our sin. Because sex itself, as intimate, as wonderful as it can be, that, that's, that's not a sin. Sex itself is not a sin. It is, the, it is your heart that sins against you. It is your heart that corrupts the gift of sex. Paul Tripps write, writes this. He says, if you allow your heart to be ruled by sex or sexual pleasure or sexual power or whatever other thing sex gets you, you will not only misuse the good gift of God, but also end up being controlled by it. But here's where we have the great news of the gospel. We, because of the gospel, we are no longer controlled by this passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Instead, we do know God. And hence, we are free from sin. Romans 6 verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because of that truth, Paul can then write in Romans 6 verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instrument or vessels for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments. For righteousness. We see here. We see here. That. Disciplining our bodies. Our vessels in holiness and honor. Our desires. Our passions. Is a response to God and his salvation. And then. One final discipline. One final discipline. Is to honor the body of Christ, to honor your community, to treat every member of your church with dignity 
and respect. Right? Paul writes in verse 6, he, he tells them that no one would transgress and rob his brother in this matter. Paul here, he's warning. He's warning the Thessalonians, but he, he's specifically warning the men and the leaders. He's telling them, be careful. Don't exercise your power and your status to exploit others and take advantage of them sexually. You see, we can't separate sex from relationships. The, you, the two go together. And what happens is that when sexual morality infiltrates the church, it divides the community. Because trust becomes broken and people become hurt. What we see here is that lust does more damage, does more damage to, to not just your walk with God, but to the entire community of God. Church, we need to hear such a word like this today. Because we, we read in news all the time, the news covers love this when a pastor falls guilty of sexual misconduct. Or we see sexual abuse happening within a church. And, and to read news like that, it's no wonder why people don't seem to trust the church. We must be a church that strives for holiness. A church where community is found, where trust populates the air. We must then discipline ourselves in how we engage with one another. Especially how we engage with one another when we are talking to the opposite gender. We must carry ourselves all the time above reproach. To treat one another with honor. To urge one another towards holiness. And so your holiness matters more than you know. It, it's not just about your spiritual walk with God. But it's about the spiritual growth of the entire body of Christ. And so these then are... The three disciplines that we're called to, the three holy disciplines here. But these disciplines are, they're, they're, they're guidelines, they're boundaries. But the boundaries, they're, they're no good if we're, we have no intent of following them. We're always going to hop the fence. So why have the fence there? And so Paul then presents in our next call, a call to a holy mindset. A call to a holy mindset. And what we see here is that this mindset it's a reminder of why we must follow these disciplines. And again, I have two subpoints to this. What we have here is two truths that will help frame our mindset. And the first truth is this that there will indeed be a future judgment. And in verse 6, second half of verse 6, Paul says, so I'll read the whole thing in verse 6 says that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What we see here is that there will indeed be a future judgment. Paul speaks about this in throughout his letter to the Thessalonians, that there is this wrath coming, a wrath coming for all transgressors, for all sinners. Because our God, our God is a holy God. And He will not allow sin to go unpunished. It says here that God is an avenger. Not like a comic book avenger, but a true avenger. A real avenger 
the ultimate avenger. What exactly is God avenging? God, God is avenging the injustice shown by those who commit sexual morality. Because, again, we can't separate sex from from relationships. And so this sin, sexual morality, like all other sins, it claims its own, its own victims. Someone always ends up coming out hurt, broken, or ashamed. And, and because every person is created in the image of God to defile another person, to defile another man or woman, is to defile God himself. God will avenge his image. He will redeem his creation. But God is also avenging the idols that that seeks to replace him at the heart of our worship. See, every sin, every act of sexual morality is an attack against God. It's, It's telling God that he does not have the rightful place on the throne of your heart. My friends, you will face the consequence of your sins. You will face the consequence of your sins, and and especially when it comes to sexual morality. If you're married, you will face emotional pain of guilt and shame before your spouse. If you're single, you will suffer the pain of unmet expectations. If you're a leader, a ministry leader, challenge to myself, you will be disqualified. At the end of the day, God will vindicate his name, but it may come at the expense of your honor if you fall into sexual immorality. Ultimately, though, God will avenge your sins by condemning you to death. Because every sin leads to death. And this is nothing to take lightly. Right? If we take if we take our sins lightly, then 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 you don't understand the death of what Christ suffered on the cross. See, Jesus Christ did not just die. He didn't just die, but he bore the full weight of God's wrath against your sin. And he did that so that you can live a righteous life, not a sinful one. And if you are here tonight with us as a guest, and maybe you're not a believer, you do, you're, you're curious, and you struggle too with the same sin, you too will face vengeance. You too will face the avenger. You too will face eternal condemnation. But thanks be to God that the salvation that we have in Christ is also offered to you. If you put your faith in Jesus today and repent of your sins and follow Jesus Christ, you too will be saved. You too will be free from your sin. Moving on to our second mindset to to think about our present condition. In verse 7, Paul writes this. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
What we see here is that when we receive the grace of God, as we, we have to make sure we don't take it for granted. The grace of God is not a free ticket to pursue sexual morality. You are caught and you are caught and you are standing right now presently in the state of grace. You stand in the sphere of holiness. In other words, this, this mindset that we're talking about here, this holy mindset, is that you do not pursue holiness as if you have it. You pursue holiness because that is now your identity in Christ. Holiness becomes your identity. You see, this is like, this is like an what it means to be like an employee versus what it means to be like a manager. As an employee, if you try to boss around your coworkers who are like at the same low as you, you try to you know tell them what to do and stuff like that, they'll look at you and they'll think of you as like a stand-up jerk. But once you're given the title of a manager, the identity of a manager, and and now you give your orders, they might still think you're a jerk, but you're now placed in a position to give out those orders. You see, they have to, in some way. Listen to you. So sometimes, sometimes we have to be given the title before we can perform the role. And so what we have here is that we are called then in holiness. That is our identity. Now being in a state of holiness does not give us any authority. But what we do have is an identity to live out, a purpose. And what, what I'm trying to say here is that we have to remember that sanctification is still a process of growing holiness. You see, we're, we're, we are saved, but we're not yet perfect. We are redeemed, but in our redemption, we're still growing towards perfection. What, what this identity does, what this mindset does for us, is it gives us great hope. It gives, should give you hope. Especially if you are currently right now feeling like you're stuck in, this, in a cycle of sin when it comes to sexual morality. And maybe you feel like the bondage of this sin just is so strong. And you, you feel like you can't escape from it. And your guilt, your shame, it weighs you down so much that you no longer feel like a Christian and you fear the wrath of God. And so in order to atone for your guilt, what do you do? You, you push yourselves. You push yourselves to follow these disciplines for sexual purity. You try to promise yourself that you'll never fall into temptation again. You pray to God, help me. But what happens? You fail again. And again, and the cycle continues. What's the problem here? The problem is that your view of God may be too small. See, when God calls you, He is not calling you to be pure in order to earn His approval. God calls you as a sinner. He takes you in and claims you as a son. His love for you remains faithful even when you are faithless. You see, 
Do you see how God has called you not for impurity, but in holiness? So run to Him. Run to Him poor in your spirit, weak in your flesh, humbled in your heart. And seek God to be your Savior, your Redeemer, your Heavenly Father, whose love for you can overwhelm you and transform your heart for holiness. Ultimately, God has called us to be on His side, which leads us to our last point, the call to holy allegiance. To call to holy allegiance. Verse 8, Paul writes this, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You are called to holiness in your sexual conduct, Because you have been called by God. You have been called by God. You now live in allegiance to Him and His standards, not the world's standards. You answer to God and no one else. This is not like a friend telling you what to do. This is not just a teacher telling you what to do. It's not your parents. It's not even a president telling you what to do. This is God. This here... This here tells us, shows us how important it is to obey this call, to respond to this call. We see here that the magnitude of our obedience is measured by the person whom we are submitting to. And the person we are submitting to here is God. To be holy in our sexual conduct requires us then, requires us then to value sex in the way God values sex. In other words, we can't be afraid to talk about this topic of sex. As a church, we need to engage with one another about this. We need to engage with the youth about this. Do not treat your sexual desires like like it's your, it's like like your hunger for food. Our sexual desires are not just bodily needs waiting to be fulfilled. See, the world does that. The world trivializes sex. They completely undermine the significance of it. But the church knows better. The church must do better. We can't avoid speaking about sexual purity. We can't just treat this topic as taboo. We have to bring back the value of sex. Because yes, indeed, sex is a gift. Sex is a gift. And God has given us this gift for His glory. If you value sex properly, it changes many things about how you walk your life to please God. There is this great weightiness behind this gift that and we cannot, we must not misunderstand that. God cares so much about your sexual purity. If you value sex the way God values sex, you value sex properly, it changes your perspective of marriage. And it impacts the way you pursue marriage and intimacy with your spouse. 
And once you have that fixed in the right place, then it impacts, before you get married, your dating life. It impacts the way you date for the purpose of marriage. And if you have the right perspective around dating, then you have the right perspective around your own singleness and how you're supposed to stay pure and holy. You see, this has a deep impact at every stage of our lives. God cares so much about our sexual purity. And what the world has done with it, it has tarnished that value, diminished it, bring it down to such a low level. I was, I was shared by a friend an article today about how this city in the U.S. started allowing uh, polyamorous um, relationships or in the household. If you don't know what that means, it means you're allowed to have multiple spouses. It doesn't matter what gender. And and that just, I don't know, this culture and what's going on in our society and how they're treating sex, it, it pains me to see it because they're not, they're not, they're not making it better. They're tarnishing it. This was supposed to be a gift from God to us. What this means is that we must pursue sexual purity because that then becomes a symbol of the holiness of God. You see, the world cannot be like this world. I mean, the church cannot be like this world. The church must be set apart, must be God's people, must be a holy nation defined by our sexual purity. More than that, we see here God has given us His Holy Spirit. God has given us His Holy Spirit, and that, that means something to us. That should mean something to you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, looking at verse 18. This is what it means to have the Holy Spirit. Starting from verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin is a every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual morality, but, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I want us to hear those words again. You are not your own. You are no longer controlled by the passion of lust. Your sin no longer enslaves your body and your actions. You belong to God. Paul Tripp puts it this way. Worship of God means you willingly give your body to Him. You, you forever forsake ownership of your own body and what you do with it. You view your body as belonging to God, His for the using. And you commit yourself to an obedient use of your body. That is, to doing with your body only what is holy and acceptable in His sight. No matter what your passions, thoughts, or desires tell you. You, my friends, are owned by God. You were bought with the pure and unblemished blood of Christ. And He sacrificed 
He sacrificed his perfect body in order to sanctify yours. Do you see that your sexual purity proclaims where your holy allegiance lies? Do you realize just how much Christ paid for your redemption? If you are constantly struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with lustful thoughts, if you're struggling with discontentment in your relationship or your singleness, you are belittling the the cost of the cross. What you're doing is you're replacing God's ownership over your heart, over your body with yours, with you, thinking you own it. But remember God's gift of His Holy Spirit in you. His Spirit dwells in you. And in this you can find great comfort because the Spirit of God becomes a seal of God's love for you. God who began a good work in you will see it to completion. When you see and know and recognize the Holy Spirit in you, you're reminded that God will never leave you. That your sanctification is ongoing. That is the will of God and His will will be done. That even if our faith fails, God will remain faithful. His Holy Spirit in you is that guarantee. He will never leave you. And even if you do struggle with your purity, when you face the pain of your fallenness and the weight of your guilt, the Spirit will bring you back to Christ. Bring you back to Christ and remind you of your calling. Remind you that the wrath of God against your sin has been satisfied by the cross. And remind you that you have a relationship with God that surpasses any relationship that sex can give you. I don't have a big idea to end this message with, but I do want to encourage us of what Christ is doing in your life. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25, we have the great passage of what a, of a husband and a wife. And when we see here in this passage just truly how much God cares about our holiness. Paul tells us here in, in Ephesians 5, 25, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for you. He cared for you. Why? What was his purpose? He gave himself up for you or for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The cost it is for you to be like that before Christ in heaven was the cost of his blood. The Son of God, he died on the cross to make this sanctification real. Do you not think then that your holiness matters to God? Do you not think that your holiness or your sexual purity is valuable in the eyes of God? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for your holy word. Your word that that cleanses our souls, that that digs into our hearts, that shows us our sin, that reminds us of our need for you. God, I pray that right now we come before you with broken hearts, needing you, Lord, to repair it, to fulfill us. Lord, we come to you asking you, God, for your redemption, for your grace. Because, Lord, we have no hope without it. But, Lord, we thank you that you are so full of love, so full of mercy, that you're willing to send your son to die on the cross for us. And so, Lord God, may we respond to your calling then. May we respond to your call to holiness to pursue righteousness, to live a life that's pure and blameless and holy. May we continue, Lord, to pursue after Christ, to have our minds be renewed by Him, to continue thinking about the things that are above, to be reminded that our identity lies in You. Lord, thank You for such a great salvation that gives us such great hope, that gives us such great blessings that Lord we can indeed pursue you and be loved by you and so Lord I pray for us now as we continue then to encourage one another here tonight that that encouragement will go hence out to the rest of the world to the people around us to the people we engage with that Lord we will be then a church a light in this world a representation of your standard of purity, your standard of holiness. Lord, equip us and, and, and give us, Lord, the strength to carry out your will. Be with us now. I pray all this in your name. Amen.